to this week's podcast of the Aquila Report in Weekly Review. Uh, today is July 17, 2023, and uh, Paul Harrell and I, Dominic Aquila, are here to review the top 10 articles that the Aquila Report readers chose as they read through the Aquila Report the last week. And so that's how we get our 10. And then these 10 are hyperlinked and placed in our newsletter and sent out. Uh, by email and you receive it in your box on Tuesday the 18th of July and so we this is just an opportunity for us to tease to review what's coming so that when you read them you can engage with us uh, on on the articles here and so uh, here are the top 10 lists that we have for you and you know we always exhort help encourage you to forward the uh, email you get just uh, click on forward and send it to family friends people in your small group and other acquaintances that uh, you feel would be interested in reading uh, these articles uh, and engage with them in conversation as well because i think we do have uh, some uh, provocative um, well thought out uh, articles here that uh, should uh, stir us all so paul we're ready to have uh, this new week we're mid july and uh i'm just saying that you're more in the middle part of the country and there's this uh, sort of bubble they said hanging over i haven't the... heard about a bubble there's a bubble yeah sort of that's real hot you go outside and they you sort of melt oh yes okay well that would be the that would be i would describe that with my air conditioning went out last week for the Ooh. second time in two weeks and so had to get a new air conditioning unit uh so i'm very thankful for the cool <laughs> crisp air in my home but i am i am not uh, not necessarily happy about uh you know the cost of a new uh you know yeah. hvac system but no. you know it is one of those things yes yeah, it is that yes well it seems like it's it just uh, warmer uh, feeling the heat a little bit more just because it's staying stationary and there's not the cooling elements uh, like rain and so forth coming yeah. but anyway we're here to uh, do our discussion so paul why don't we begin as we normally do with you reading the top 10 from 10 to 6 i'll read from 5 to 1 and then we'll start our discussion all right so number 10 uh, we have james e bruce uh, of atheists and oaths Number nine, Little Voices in the Pews. This is written by Amy Tommen. Then we have number eight from last week, S.R. Uh, Austin, writing, Why Elizabeth Elliot Changed Her Beliefs About Finding God's Will. Coming at number seven, Why Macon is Important for the Church Today, a reflection on chapter seven of Christianity and Liberalism, part two. This is by Greg Allison. And number six, uh, we have uh, Add Some uh try uh ravenhill writing does amillennialism really need a rebrand okay well then number five fellowship before and after sunday school services by uh danny myers uh <clears throat> we um let's see hold on a second this um thing is here uh it's um the Next one is a really interesting one by Shane Rosenthal, The Story of Us is that title. And then number three uh, is Why Are So Many of Our Youth Identifying as LBGTQ+, uh, written by Mark Sanders. And then number two 
is Music at the GA, that is General Assembly, and the PCA by Terry Johnson. And then number one uh, is an article by um, Ron DeGiacomo, the PCA's principle on non-communing members, a halfway covenant. And so we begin with that one by Ron DeGiacomo and basically just inquiring for the Presbyterian Church in America with regard to the teaching that is in the Book of Church Order uh, with regard to the concept of non-communing members, that is the uh, children of believers. Uh, he says the BCA Book of or Church Order, that is the BCO, teaches that children of professing believers are members of the visible church and therefore are entitled to baptism. Indeed, uh, per BCO 56-1, baptism should not be unnecessarily delayed. But however, what the BCO does not teach is that a refusal to baptize one's covenant child is a great sin that entails a cutting off from the assembly. But should it teach that? It doesn't at this point is what uh, Ron DeJacques most alleging. Uh, should the BCO teach the to deny that to deny uh, baptism to a covenant child is to deny a covenant child non-communing membership in the visible church? So just to un understand for people who aren't used to that particular kind of language is that in the visible church, in uh, historic Presbyterian and Reformed churches, uh, that the uh, we live, we believe we live under a covenant of God, the new covenant that is in Christ, and that the covenant includes uh, both those who have professed Christ and have made that profession of faith and made become public in that confession and their children. And so the visible church is made up of professing believers and their children, so that the just as in the old covenant, uh, children uh, within the covenant of the Old Testament uh, the, of Israel uh, were uh, not only born and became a part of Israel, but also received the sign. The male children received the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And so the principle carries over into the new covenant in which children are also uh considered to be members of the new form, new covenant, the new Israel, and therefore they should also receive the sign. And so there are people who still struggle with that and wonder about it. Uh, but the question that Ron Giacomo is asking primarily is, uh, does the Presbyterian Church of America's book of church order clearly make that distinction so that these children who are by virtue of their birth to Christian parents who are members of the visible church, then they become uh, non-commuting members. That is, since they have not professed Christ, they're not yet taking communion because they have not come to that place of understanding. And so the uh, question is, non-commuting members then ought to receive the sign of the covenant, which is baptism, to certify that reality that by birth, they are children of the covenant. So what uh, just is raising the question, uh, is the BCU correct and that children can remain unbaptized and yet members of the visible church? In other words, in the face of pastoral oversight and instruction, should parents' refusal of the covenant entitlement of Christian baptism be met with the denial of the child's covenant-keeping status? 
this is the principle uh, beginning goes back to Abraham and then dramatically punctuated through Zipporah's intervention onto the saving of Moses' life, which you can find in Exodus 4, as uh, God uh, sent Moses, you know, the, at the burning bush, he called him to go to Egypt to say, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so as he is beginning that journey, has Zipporah and his two sons, and on the way, it says that God met them and he was about to take Moses' life because the sons had not yet been uh, circumcised. And so quickly Zipporah did it. Uh, and uh, the, the God's anger against Moses ceased because of that, because they had not, he had not himself taken the time to uh, bring her, the, his sons under, receive the sign of the covenant, mm -hmm. because they were already members of the covenant by virtue of their uh, they're being born into Israel. So uh, now how does all that apply in the practice of the church? So the question that uh, Ron de Jacquemus asked is, does the BC offer a halfway covenant that divides non-commuting members then into two classes? That is, uh, there's the those who are born in the covenant, but uh, whose parents then do not bring them to baptism. Uh, and then those who are born to the covenant and that receive the sign of baptism, uh, are, they're both then listed or considered non-commuting members. Is that appropriate is what he's basically asking in terms of uh, the clarity and the consistency that we would have between the two covenants. So BCO teaches that an unbaptized covenant child remains a member of the visible church, even without an intention of a believing parent to have his or her child received into membership through the sign of covenant membership. Consequently, it's hard to understand how the BCO does not divide child membership in the visible church between non-believing members and received members. So it's an internal issue that the question is how serious and how consistent will the Western um, Church of America be in the way it outlines itself in the Book of Church Order. And there appears at times that uh, Ron DeGiacomo brings up uh, some inconsistencies in the framing of words here and there and sections of the, the BCO. So he's raising this to uh, call the church to, is there something that we could do about this to give clarity one way or the other, you know, but hopefully come out in the direction that of the rat, the way in which he is uh, wrapping up. So he says, basic wrapping up, perhaps the uh, reason we have this dilemma, if indeed it is a dilemma, and he says, I think it is, regarding the status of children born of Christian parents is because uh, we are being uh, overly selective with the principles that can be derived from the sign of circumcision. Could it be that we're applying the old covenant uh, principle of blessings in establishing the right, uh, rightful recipient of infant baptism while passing over the covenant principles of curses, principle of curses upon covenant children as they relate to withholding infant baptism? Covenant theologians rightly make such of the, much of the principle of circumcision as it applies to baptism of covenant children, yet we uh, uh, overlook the principle of Genesis 15, 17, 14 with respect to the covenant sanction that falls upon the children born of professing uh, parents who without the sign of the covenant from their children. 
So my hope, he says, is that we might uh, tighten up the clarity and uh, with up with clarity, rather, of our sacramental uh, test theology as it relates to our ecclesiology, uh, even to perhaps well, he doesn't quite say it this way here in his article. Uh, perhaps uh, someone listening to this or some group of uh, pastors or covenant theologians can come together and look at the passages that have been raised or that are in the book uh, maybe propose an overture to clarify the language that um, can be put before the church to discuss and debate. So I know that sounds like a heavy duty amount, Paul, but um, yeah, I mean, it does. It does sound like that. You're right. Yeah. But it's uh, important. The question is, again, just for clarity, we have children born of believing parents who are part of the Presbyterian Church in America. The members, the parents are professing members. Uh, they have a child. The child is considered then by virtue of being born into a Christian home and of parents who are part of the covenant community. Uh, they are considered non-commuting members. As a result, they, the book, our BCO says they should receive the sign of that fact. And if they don't receive it, then what is the status of those who don't receive it with reference to the whole gamut, the, the whole picture of covenant theology as expressed in the confession of faith and then practiced and uh, uh, spread on the book of church order. So that's basically how we can summarize it as uh, trying to be more consistent with what uh, or is there need of being more consistent uh, in the book of church order? So that's what's before us. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, it was the number one article. So, I mean, it certainly, you know, stimulated the minds of the Aquila Report readers. That's for sure. Yes. And I think it's a, a good one. And I, I, I'm glad it was because it is something that that's part of the ecclesiology of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches going back to the Reformation for sure, as far as just the putting together of covenant theology, although it goes back to the scripture itself. So um, those of uh, the listeners here, the readers of the Equal Report, with this article, perhaps someone can come up with a appropriate solution that will be at least get the church debating it uh, in a way that can propose amending uh, the book for clarity's sake. So, okay, that's um, the one. And I, I sense that uh, it is confusing enough, Paul, that you're not going to say much about it. So we'll just move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, it's like I said, it's not easy, but hopefully we've explained it well. So that uh, at least the parameters of it. And so please read the article. It really will stimulate, will encourage you. It will uh, stretch your mind in terms of the application of this uh, principle. Uh, in the life of the church. Okay, number two is by uh, Terry Johnson, music at the GA and the PCA. Uh, uh, does the PCA, uh, Terry Johnson asks here at the beginning, in general, understand the role of music in the worship of the Reformed Church? The answer must be no if our annual experience at the General Assembly gives any indication. What the Reformation revived was the congregational singing, and congregational singing is in italics to give emphasis that that's the focus, uh, of the congregational singing of the patristic church. The medieval church had musical instruments and choirs, and they provided the music. Congregation sat mute as the professionals performed. 
the reformers rightly restored the singing of the congregation, whether hymns, uh, as Lutherans did, or psalms, as the Reformed Church tended to do, um, uh, of as of one of five elements in the ordinary worship of the church. It was elevated to this place of prominence along with the reading and preaching of scripture, prayer, and the administration of the sacraments. Congregational singing even takes on confessional status in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter uh, 21 uh, and par fifth paragraph. Uh, yet <clears throat> year in and year out, as we assemble, that is the Presbyterian Church in America's General Assembly, uh, 3,000 strong, only to have the musicians, vocalists, and choirs overwhelm the gathered congregation. And once again this year, most of the time in our official services, it was impossible to hear one's own voice, never mind that of the surrounding multitude. The high level of skill and prodigious efforts made by all of the performers is obvious, their proper function less so. So what is the role of musicians, vocalists, and choirs in the Reformed Church? Simply this, to support the divinely authorized element of congregational singing. Support, not overwhelm. Support, not usurp. Support, not entertain. Support, not drown out. And especially support and not discourage by making the singing of the congregation superfluous. So uh, Terry, as a pastor of the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah is just reminding us of what our history, so just like our first article dealing with the covenant, uh, is something that's very uh, strongly embedded into the um, warp and woof of the theological system of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches. And so he's asking the question, uh, how, are, how are, is music uh, and the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to be done in the context of worship. Uh, it's congregational singing, not performance from a group. So that it brings up our other issue that um, is before the church that we got that we're still wrestling with a lot, Paul. Yeah, I mean, you know, as somebody who attended GA uh, for the first time um, because it was in Memphis and it was, you know, 50, a 50 minute drive. Um, I will say, I mean, I thought the service was great. The one service that I was there I was only there for, for Wednesday night. And uh, I went to the uh, the more event, um, uh, the more ruling, uh, more orthodox ruling elders and the PCA event after uh, after that. I think it was Wednesday. I was struck by how absolutely loud the music was, I will say. And, you know, this is somebody who, uh, you know, I guess technically I'm an, I'm a millennial. I mean, I'm 39 years old. I don't I, I barely made this weird category of millennial Dominic. I, I actually dispute it. I don't, I don't like it, but technically that's, that's what I am. Um, but yeah, it was too loud. I mean, I, even the organ music was literally would just make your teeth rattle. That's how loud it was. And I did, I just, I guess I didn't understand it. I mean, uh, I, and I kind of was more in the front of the room. So maybe, you know, if you were in the back of the room, it wasn't as loud. I don't know. That may be the case because the speakers were pretty massive. I mean, it was a very impressive setup. But uh, but for sure, you, you know, the the point of leading uh, worship, you know, in my opinion, your point and this I mean, I, I, I do this uh, at my church. You're the point is to get the congregation to sing. That is the whole point. Everything is crafted towards that. You know, the key that you're going to sing it in. Is it comfortable for most, you know, voices? How do we get the congregation 
you know, to sing that that is uh, one of the main focuses of that. Uh, you know, that's why some people think a piano is much better than a guitar, because there are more notes and keys and it's easier for the human ear to find a note that works, you know, in the song. A guitar, it's harder to do that on a guitar for the congregation, for the benefit of the congregation. So I love this article. This was my favorite article of the entire uh, top 10 this week. So, Oh, okay, good. Well, it's good to know. Uh, to, and you, if you read it a few times, maybe the clicks uh, helped it get to number two then. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Okay. All right. Number three, uh, why are so many of our youth identifying as LGBTQ+. This is by Mark Sanders, who is the head of Harvest USA, which is a ministry uh, it's headquartered in Philadelphia that ministers to the homosexual community, sharing the good news of Christ and, and setting up means by which those who feel themselves caught and ensnared in the whole LGBTQ uh, plus uh, lifestyle uh, can be helped to either come out or after as they uh, leave that uh, to profess Christ and then also to uh, have support groups that will help um, move forward and to reintegrate into the church and culture and so forth. So the question is, it seems like the, this whole thing about uh, gender identity and di gender dysphoria has become more problematic uh, in our culture generally and, and apparently it's creeping into the life of the church. Someone like Mark Sanders, who wrote this and would be aware of it because he has ear to ground, sort of knows that uh, community of uh, that part of our culture and what's going on. So he says, I've been representing Harvest USA as many uh, national uh, Christian at many national Christian conferences over the last two years. Uh, we get a lot of traffic at our exhibit tables and one people find out that we do what we do most of them tell tell me about their child grandchild or friend who has come out as gay or transgender almost everyone i meet has been personally touched by the lgbtq plus wave sweeping our country and the overwhelming majority of people identifying as lbgtq plus are young what is happening to our millennial gen z and alpha generations uh, he gives us a couple of statistics here that might be helpful. In the last uh, Gallup poll for 2022, only 2.7% 2 of uh, baby boomers and 3.3% of Gen Xers identified as LGBTQ+, versus 11.2% of millennials and 19.7% of Gen Z. Along with that, while they're was only slight increase in the total percentage of Americans identifying as LGBTQ plus from 2020, 2012 through 2020. Uh, what that number showed a marked uptick from 2020 to 2021. So how do we make sense of this data? While there are many factors involved, there are just a few things to consider. Uh, now, remember, he's talking and answering the question about so much of our youth. So the maybe the Gen Z and that group here primarily, uh, he mentions uh, COVID lockdowns and TikTok and the emphasis that uh, that that and the focus that had is uh, people, you know, kids were locked up around, you know, staying at home. Uh, most of their information was coming through the Web. Uh, they re received consistent, he says, indoctrination in their virtual classrooms. 
uh, but they were also getting heavy doses uh, of it on the uh, social media. He says by April 2020, just at the lockdowns, as lockdowns began, TikTok surpassed 2 billion downloads worldwide. So consider what happens when our youth are cut off from the real world and plugged into an attractive, addictive, uh, virtual world um, algorithmic, algorithmically curated to show only one perspective. And so that's one of the areas that happens here. So uh, many will argue the dramatic increase in people identifying as LBGTQ plus stems mainly from the growing social acceptance. Uh, they'll say that numbers have always been this high, but only recently have people felt safe to be public about it. Well, that may be true for some, it doesn't really account for the large statistical differences uh, between the generations. And so Mark Sanders points that out. But he also goes on with another question. Uh, he says, the question used to be, how do I live as a man? How do I live as a woman? But now the question uh, every child is being forced to consider is, am I a boy or a girl? And that becomes one of the defining points about the gender dysphoria and identification. So the question also here is the battle for a better story, uh, not only the impact of the social media, but also a better story. So I recently spoke at a retreat for a few hundred Christian uh, college students from a variety of secular campuses. I was sobered by the extent uh, to which worldly categories have infiltrated this generation. Uh, the deck had been stacked against them. They've been fed language narratives and parameters that prohibit any biblical characterization uh, for who we are and how we are to live. Truly, Gen Z needs an entire deconstruction of their sexual worldview for a biblical world framework, biblical framework to make any sense. So this deconstruction won't start with logical arguments and statistics. They have been captured not by data, but by a story. And so as long as the story narrative comes up, that'll come up. In fact, there'll be another, uh, the next article will deal with the whole idea of story as being the narrative as opposed to uh, dogma or reasoning uh, and intellectual thought. Uh, we also have uh, here um, many who currently find their value, meaning, and identity in an LBGTQ plus label will, in God's good timing, find Christ and Christ alone to be their all in all. And he sees this as part of one of the extensions of his own ministry with Harvest uh, USA. Uh, <clears throat> but this is where Christians have every reason for unshakable hope and confidence. We have a better story to tell. The gospel is the only narrative that accounts for everything that we experience in life and promises transcendent, everlasting hope and purpose. So he leaves and ends this article in a very high note that, uh, that the, the ministry that the church has and believers have to, to share in the story of Christ and the, the truth of the gospel is what uh, can break the power of uh, reigning sin in uh, lives but it's a good question because it's number three because i really think this is uh, paul as we've already said that uh something that is so uh, easy now to acquire in culture uh that the church has to step up and be able to make sure it's presenting the counter story uh which is the hope that we have in christ 
Yeah, you're and and I completely agree. We need to remember there are members of the uh, LGBT, you know, persuasion that are not that are not yet Christians, but will be, you know, and uh, there's going to be there's going to be some saved who went through with the surgeries and, and have to, you know, live with this. And it's going to be. But but I mean, I, I have the hope that there are those who are going to be called out of that. Uh, we do not know you know who those are uh, yet. Um, there are some that have already been called out of that. But you know, the sin of the age now, I mean, the sin, you know, it was, I don't know, in the 60s, I guess, was it just drugs? Was it just, uh, you know, we don't want to submit to any authority? But of course, now it's, this is the sexual sin of our age. It's not just with, you know, homosexuality. It's all kinds of sexual sin out there that, that seems to be, you know, uh, the, the the way things are going. I think there's a lot, I would love to see these numbers if they were able to be broken down by race. Uh, you know, the 2.7% of baby boomers uh, identify as one of those categories. 3.3 of Gen Xers, 11.2% of millennials. You see why I don't want the millennial category. 19.7% of Gen Z. And it's even higher. They recently surveyed uh, over at Brown University. 40% of the students at Brown University identify as LGBT or Q or plus or whatever. Now that is astounding to me. So it's just, it's certainly upticking. Um, and I, I kind of think, and he kind of hits on this in the article um, with this category about the story. Uh, we, we, we have a better story, but when he says many who currently find their value, meaning and identity, that's the thing they're finding their value, meaning and identity in LGBT labels. I think Dominic, because we are so we're such a victim hood based society right so if if you're a man well and you want to be a masculine man well that's a bad thing and you're going to you're somehow less than and it's everywhere that this the brainwashing the attack on masculinity the attack on patriarchy so and if you're a white man and let's just use the term boy if you're growing up in school and you're you're a white boy then well okay well now you've we've got white privilege we've got the cultural marxism we've got the crt um there is they, these kids have been incentivized to find a victimhood category and adopt it. And I think that's really why you're seeing it. Uh, we also have to consider that God is giving them over you know, to a debased mind and everything else, which obviously is happening, too. But I think people and that would go right in line with this. I think people they're wanting to find a victimhood category because it's safe. They're no longer a bigot. Now, they're they're now marked safe from being a bigot or. You know, they've got a label that is now a protected class. And that's what this is about. This is no longer about equal rights. This is about special rights. And uh, this is what this is where we are. You know, I mean, and mm -hmm. it's it's very sad. But again, the hope is, is that even in the midst of all of that, the Holy Spirit is going to wake some of these people up and it's going to be glorious. It's going to it's going to glorify the Lord. So. Exactly. And that's uh, why the Ministry of Harvest has been playing such an important role in itself and also the training they do and uh, the counsel they give to uh, churches and how to minister in this area and not just succumb to and give into uh, whatever the cultural narrative is at this point. And that's important for us to realize that that um, everyone who's trapped in some uh, area of sin, uh, longstanding uh, something's new, something old, makes no difference. Uh, the gospel can um, reach into that bleakness and the darkness and with the, its powerful light draw uh, men and women to themselves. 
Well, then number four, then maybe this fits into the narrative here and fits it gives a little bit more background. The story of us. Uh, this is by Shane Rosenthal. We preach not ourselves, he says, but Christ and him crucified. Uh, he says in her book, uh, Spiritual Spirituality for Dummies, Sharon Janice writes, in a nutshell, spirituality relates to your own personal experience and relationship with the divine. Dogma can be can muddy the waters of a spiritual path. Similarly, in his book, Conversations with God, Neil Donald Walsh writes that leaders, ministers, books, and even the Bible itself are not authoritative sources. In fact, he claims that God specifically directs us to listen to your feelings, listen to your experience, and when any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words the words are at the very, at the least, uh, purveyors of uh, least purveyors of truth, reliable purveyors of truth. So, so what basically uh, Rosenthal starting out by quoting these uh, factors uh, is that that um, experience trumps everything else. And so what he is saying is that we have to develop a story, as we already have mentioned. Uh, nearly a century ago, he refers to J. Gresham Machen. Uh, observe that what many men despise today as doctrine, the New Testament calls the gospel. He points His point was that the gospel, which lies at the very heart of our faith, uh, is itself an announcement of a particular set of facts. In fact, the word gospel, which in the Greek is euangelion, uh, simply refers to the announcement or proclamation of good news. And so Paul, he quotes from Paul in First Corinthians 15 that says, here's what I preach to you. He says, I preach to you what I received. And where did Paul receive it? He received it from Christ himself and then by the power of the Holy Spirit. So according to the clear words of First Corinthians 15, Paul didn't think of the gospel as a spiritual tool uh, lifting uh, you up when life gets you down. He didn't provide us with tips and instructions to deepen our relationship with the divine or suggest that we follow our hearts wherever they happen to lead us. No, the thing of first importance was that Jesus died for our sins, that he died, he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And of course, all of that, he says, is dogma. And the word dogma, of course, is just an older phrase. We hardly use it today much uh, for doctrine, uh, for correct uh, teaching. So uh, Shane uh, Rosenthal goes on in his uh, book and his article here, which is quite a lengthy one, but it's a very provocative one, uh, which basically is basically dealing with, and I think, Paul, we've been talking about it here, uh, the difference between preaching theologically and preaching therapeutically. Uh, when if you sort of break it down into the larger categories, uh, he quotes another one, the humble skeptic podcast, Rethink 315, founder Jeremy Smith, tells a story of his own conversion and personal transformation. Later, when he decided to share his testimony with his old friends, he says that they could see that his life had changed, but they just simply shrugged it off. And they said, well, that's good for you. Uh, this, he says, is actually what led him to study apologetics because he quickly realized that he needed something more than his own personal experience. Uh, then he takes us to Dorothy Sayers, and which she makes a, an interesting statement that I, I really uh, almost want to bring into my 
repertoire of uh, using is the dogma is the drama. That is the drama of the gospel. Says uh, She says the people who hanged Christ, Sayers writes, never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him to be too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. Here we have an evaluate with our own situation. If we content or proclaim the story of us rather than the story of Jesus, then it seems that we are too guilty of muffling Christ's shattering personality. If we are more interested in telling others about the effects of the gospel in our lives than the gospel itself, we have lost sight of the things of first importance. So she goes, he goes on to say the gospel of Jesus is the greatest story ever told. If you believe your story is more interesting and more effective than his story, I believe this is evidence that you have turned to a, quote, different gospel, which is really no gospel at all, as Paul says in Galatians 1. We should recall the alternate uh, alternative gospel. Gospels are were around in the first century, just as much as they are today. Jews demand, demand signs, Paul said. Greeks look for wisdom. But what do we do? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Admittedly, there is quite a lot of dogma in this gospel of the crucified, buried, risen Messiah. But we should never lose sight of the fact that the dogma is the drama. So um, something for us to think about the story that we tell, Paul, is uh, usually dictates uh, how and what we're doing in our presentation. And, and clearly Rosenthal in this article is not saying that we've become dogmatic or dogma centered to the point where we're a bore. No, we unleash the, um, that, that uh, radical personality of Christ uh, that, as uh, Sayers said, he was, he was so dynamic he wasn't safe. Yeah, I really I like this article a whole lot. I love that he um, you know, talks about um brings up you already covered this, but first Corinthians fifteen. You know, I don't know if you guys have any friends that are maybe not confessional or uh, you know, maybe Christian but in a different denomination and they don't understand you've gotten away from saying creeds or and or responsive readings in church. Um I mean first Corinthians fifteen is such a great place to go, you know, to say, look, we're just we're just saying the things that are in scripture, you know, um, and this is such a great evidence, especially when you look at the, um, you know, historical dating for the, for when first Corinthians was written by Paul. Uh, but yeah, I love, you know, for, for I deliver to you as a first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Anyway, it's, uh, that to me, I, I was really glad he landed there. Cause I'm, um, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of people talk about First Corinthians 15, and it's it's uh, one right. of my favorite verses. Well, so. Paula, you know, it's, it's, just before we move on uh, to the next article, that that this story of us then really helps to understand the article just before, which is why are so many of our young people turning to other things like any part of the LGBTQ plus community or thinking is because we're not telling them the story. Um, why are they wrestling That's with true. any kind of issue um, uh, that that culture throws at them is because we are telling our personal story as opposed to the story of Jesus, as um, 
uh, Rosenthal puts out here. So it's not the story of us, the story of Jesus in which we can wrap our own testimony, of course. Uh, but so we're not talking about making it boring. We're talking about the dogma is the drama. Share the drama in such a way that you capture the attention of the audience. All right. Well, then number five is fellowship before and after Sunday services. Sort of taking us in a different direction. Uh, number five here, um, article Danny Myers uh, talks about the importance of gathering together, not only for worship, but also uh, fellowship. The Christian church has the great gospel, uh, has the great gospel reminder that the morning, the drawing of the light, the dawning of the light brings forth fresh praise and fruitful uh, fellowship of the saints. Why is this important? Uh, it was in the morning that Jesus uh, Christ was raised, defeating death and the grave, setting forth priority of the Lord's day. The worship of Almighty God is not an individual practice, but a command, communal one. The Lord's Day is a day for this community when we engage in our calling as a covenant people to fellowship with God and with one another. And so he is saying uh, we need to begin to think more directly, not just about being friendly. He's he's taking it beyond that. He's talking about the fellowship of the saints, he says, is vital to our life in Christ and our understanding of being a part of the church. And uh, so he says, here's a call. Uh, to Christians that we must not isolate ourselves, but instead come together. To be sure, there are painful seasons of isolation for some members of the church, and there are also contexts outside corporate worship that can also fit into this exhortation. In our day, however, it is entirely possible to come to church and leave without any real meaningful conversation or investment in relationship. How subtle yet dangerous the temptation to think that church then becomes more about me, there's that personal concept again, than what I can get uh, and uh, about me and what I get opposed to what I can give. A Christian cannot be an individualist. The church needs what is each unique member uh, has to offer. And uh, as you come to the end here, similarly staying around for a few minutes uh, moments after service allows us time to meet visitors whom perhaps we hadn't met before. Having spent time in worship, perhaps one is now more prepared to encourage others because of the truth that was proclaimed. The thoughtful, Christ-centered, purposeful worship that God has laid out for his church is, uh, in his word requires work, and yet worship works. Uh, it brings us into the throne room of grace by which we see the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the atoning work of Christ. We believe in that word of God is, is living and active, and therefore, as we worship, the word pierces us and stirs us to worship of God, conviction of sin, and comfort for the downcast. So staying after the service, then, provides an opportunity to continue that ministry by greeting, getting to know and encourage others with this same truth that we have just confessed and received. So it's a helpful reminder of the how the story continues. We're going to use sort of that model motif that seems to be prominent in our uh, lessons now, and uh, to make sure that it's incorporated and fleshed out uh, in the meet as we greet and meet uh, one another. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really I thought this was a good article as well, and. You know, it is it's always great to come early and stay late. That kind of tends to be what happens. And, you know, you look up and you're like, oh, wow, well, we got to go have lunch, you know, so. 
and then you invite someone over to that's have right it. that's, that's exactly right. right if you can't do it then meet up later so that's article number five number six is by Edsum Tri Ravenhill does amillennialism really need a rebrand now that's a mouthful uh Paul when I first read it but it's number six so obviously caught the attention of many of the uh a quote report readers um and this is basically the the uh, question you know that one of the things that the church wrestled with is when is jesus coming back the end time things eschatology the doctrine of last things so he says um uh, he talks about he starts out very slowly by talking an illustration of buying a pen and and so forth but eventually gets to the idea he says uh for those in the first camp, I'd love to encourage you that this article isn't as dense, boring, or aimless as it might seem. There are reasons we need to discuss subjects like this, and although academic theological terms might be an immediate barrier, getting to know the terms can open up deeper biblical and theological understanding, as well as simply future reading. So here are some key terms. And then he just refers to things like eschatology or premillennialism and their uh, postmillenarianism, amillenarianism, and uh, so forth. And those are your, your big terms. He says in a recent uh, YouTube video, Matthew Everhart, senior pastor of the uh, Gospel Fellowship in the PCA, suggested that amillenarianism might need to be rebranded. Uh, he's not the first to suggest this. Uh, for instance, in a commentary on Revelation uh uh, Beale says, uh, G, J, that's G.K. Beale, it is better to refer to amillennialism as inaugurated millennialism, since amill uh, literally means no millennium. And researching for this article, I found that's quite a common practice for others who are speaking about it. So uh, if you want to know more about all of those techniques, maybe the thing is just the, the hook here is that you read this article to uh, find out. Uh, more. The point is that uh, it's a word that's been around a long time, and he says, does it need to be rebranded? And so he gives some examples of how others have talked about rebranding it. But what he is really saying is there's more to than rebranding. So he says, it does, uh, I, it says, as I look around, the majority responsible was something like, I studied the Bible, I read some books, I was convinced. And there were no fireworks. It didn't announce itself in the sky. Uh, most hadn't even heard it preached. But there was a quiet comfort of the same. That is, as they understood what they believed to be the uh, teaching of the structure of the scriptures. It didn't need to be exciting. It didn't need a rebrand. And of all the other, you know, the millennial views that with all the pictures, sometimes with the, especially if you think about the Book of Revelation with all the symbols and and uh, images that are there it can excite the senses he says i say this partially because i've come from a church background full of all rebrands and i say this with the greatest love but if you have been if you'd been in my church growing up you would think that philippians 4 8 which is talking about what are the things um that we should be thinking about you would think that it's said and he then sort of expands it he says finally siblings whatever's cool whatever's trendy whatever's hip whatever's new whatever's novel whatever comes out of hillsong if there are any excellent riffs and any new ways of praise dwell on these things 
I know this is what Everhart had was suggesting, but I do think all the same that this is what these things that how they begin. So speaking understandable language, but uh, keep the words that are helpful and uh, explain them is basically the outgrowth here of this particular article by Ravenhill. You know, as somebody who's kind of recovering from being kind of more obsessed with eschatology than I should have been, this article kind of gave me like PTSD because uh, <laughs> I'm I'm kind of, you know, I'm more of a pan millennial guy. Uh, I do think it'll all pan out. I will say this, though. I think we should all, whether you're a pre-millennial person or a post-millennial or an all-millennial, I feel like I feel like we should all live like a post-millennial. And I think you could do that, you know. Uh, you know, of going forward, of seeking first the kingdom of God, of, of you know, wanting it, you know, wanting the church to grow, wanting people to be safe, wanting, you know, your kids to have uh, to have it better than than you and that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, I think any one of those, um, uh, uh, you know, categories, you could live with that mentality. I think that's better. Now, I think the pre-millennial has a, a tendency to, to, to probably be the one that's the least capable of living like that if you subscribe to that you know, uh, you know, the, the, the rapture, the way they do. And, uh, you know, at any moment, you know, we'll be gone, that sort of thing. Then that may be a little bit more difficult, but I think it's possible. And I think, uh, I think we should all probably live like post millennials. Yeah. Well, go read the article and see if you think, uh, there's a need of rebranding. Maybe they all do, but, um, by the way, in case you missed it, Paul, in the article, you mentioned the pan millennial, uh, it'll all pin out in the end that, um, uh, he does mention that as something that someone says, well, we'll just pan out in the head. Let's not worry about it. So um, anyway, good article nice. just to uh, say, how do we hold what we believe? Can we explain it in a way that we can understand it and then help others understand it? Okay. Number uh, seven is a long title. Why Machen is important for the church today. Colin, a reflection on chapter seven of Christianity and liberalism. Uh, this uh, by Greg Allison, uh, they, in this blog site, uh, Christ Overall has been going through Machen as uh, the Christianity uh, uh, and liberalism uh, in chapter by chapter, different authors reflecting on each chapter. And so in this blog, you can go back and uh, if you go to this, you could go back and see what other chapters have said and what other authors have said on each chapter. Uh, and the reason they're dealing with it is that the Christianity liberalism by Machen was written 100 years ago. And what they're all expressing is that what Machen was dealing with in 1923 and that whole era of the church, uh, while terms were different, uh, the issues really are about the same. And just, you know, we tend to clothe it with different language, but the issue, the backdrop is the same. And therefore, a Machen, even though dead, still speaks. And so here's this um, article. So we won't spend that much time, except that Allison in this one in chapter seven of Christianity and Liberalism by Machen, uh, he just highlights that Machen deals with uh, three broad categories, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, which he's he basically says the liberals sort of took a, a biblical principle of because God is indeed father and we are to be brothers in the create uh, creational sense uh, and they 
uh, blew that up into exaggerated into a whole theology that that is the essence of what Christianity is. And so Machen said, while you're using good words that you've taken for new meaning into it that have robbed it of its essence. The same thing was uh, the separate. The, the idea of being separated from liberal churches, uh, churches back in those days, instead of the word liberal, they were using the word modernist. Um, and he was saying that, you know, stay as long as you can to seek to bring about uh, reformation and change. Um, but if not, you would leave. And, and he talks about, um, uh, so he says, uh, for instance, uh, Machen prophesied and warned such departures could cost the fledgling conservative congregations in their of their church property, for instance, as it has the fall church, which left the Episcopal Church in uh, the United States in 2006, lost a court battle and had to give up its 250 year old uh, property and so forth. So those there are costs involved uh, for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes you just have to do that. So he exp just opens that up about the uh, separating or not. Uh, how long can you stand and try to bring justice or turn things around? And then the last is uh, liberalism, universalism, inclusivism, and pluralism. That's a lot of words, uh, but they are all basically are pointing to in what way does the church in 1923 and that period of time and today uh, follow the same thing where they liberalize the meaning so they bring in uh, universalism which is uh er, no matter what happens in your life by the time everything is washed out everyone's saved or we're to be inclusive we see hear a lot about inclusivism today that we aren't to make distinctions and pluralism is that no religion has exclusivity um that anything like uh uh, Christ saying that I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one can father but by me should uh, just be read out of the scripture. Uh, so there are many roads up to the top of the mountain. And so let's live with uh, tolerance with the uh, pluralistic uh, society in which we're living. So he just, uh, um, uh, Allison brings these things uh, together and says, you know, and summarizes chapter seven and shows their application for uh, us 100 years later in the life of the church. So it's a good review, as are all the other articles that have been written in this blog on taking chapter by chapter of what Machen wrote, because it's still as timely as the day it was written. It, it sure is. And I've been slogging through this book uh, for a while. I'm notorious for starting books and never finishing them. But uh, yeah, this is it's really great. And it does. If you haven't read Christianity and Liberalism, you need to give it a try because you will see the parallels of what we're dealing with now. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people when we I feel like there's some people who have been defensive, you know, when people like you or me, Dominic, say, you know, this is, uh, you know, progressivism. Or, or, or we'll, we'll even say this is liberalism. There's a lot of people that, you know, say no, you know, whether it was a side B issue or anything else to say, no, that's not what this is. We've dealt with that. That's been put to bed. That was done then. We, yeah, we, the, the question of the virgin birth, questioning the miracles of Jesus. And this stuff like, you know, no, we, we, we still believe in all that stuff. This is, this is different. They, there is a little bit of an allergy when we compare uh, some of what the modern church is going through now with what Macon said. But it lines right up. It, it, I mean, it lines up uh, just perfectly. Uh, and it really just comes down to 
whether you believe what the Bible says is true or not. That's right. And uh, so we've said here before in uh, church history that there's really nothing new under the sun. It just each generation, the same concepts come up, maybe different language, but we can already see that it's happened before. Uh, and we just need to uh, learn from the past to know how to speak to the present time with reference to the integrity that we want to maintain in the ministry of the church. And and I uh, think it's really helpful. Okay, well, number eight, um, the, there's a book written recently on <clears throat> the life of Elizabeth Elliot, and uh, this is uh, a chapter from it called Why Elizabeth Elliot Changed Her Beliefs About Finding God's Will. And this is by Lucy Austin. Um, on uh, Of the many books Elizabeth Elliot wrote, her best known is surely her first, which was Through Gates of Splendor, which uh sets out the in the story of uh her and the five missionary men and their families who had moved to ecuador to uh minister to the indian tribes and many of them uh stone age you know back never really seen a white white person or anybody outside of their system and uh so they finally landed and um thinking that they might have by throwing trinkets out and other things short to, to we're not here to hurt you we're here to find out about you anyway they were killed and martyred and that became a big sensation um and these wives like elizabeth elliott uh, lost her husband and she wrote about it through gates of splendor uh so it says the 1957 uh, multi-biography as first and foremost a narrative of how five families came together to plan a missionary approach to a little-known people group in rural Ecuador and how the plan ended in the deaths of five of the missionaries including Elizabeth Elliot's husband Jim but the book is also an exposition of the then 29-year-old Elliot's beliefs about the will of God the first mention of God's guidance appears just a page into the book and his, uh, and his clear leading is described, again, less than a page from the end. In between, God's will is characterized as covering both the big picture, that is, Christ said, go ye, and, uh, and, and their answer was, Lord, send me, and the individual details, quote, he asked uh, God specifically to show him his next move. We see God will, God's will discovered through prayer, Bible reading, circumstances, and the impressions of the inner self. But seeking to and obeying the will of God has been a constant emphasis throughout um, Elliot's life. She had grown in a world saturated in the Keswick uh, holiness uh, tradition with its stress on giving the whole person inside and out to God. And she took this teaching seriously, responding to an altar call for salvation at age 10 and another at 12 to make clear her commit, commitment to the will of God. And so the um, uh, author here, um, uh, Lucy Austin, is uh, saying that how it began the impact of the Keswick movement and that teaching about knowing the will of God. But she says Elizabeth Elliot did not stay for the rest of her life in the same theological place where she was in her 20s. 15 years after Through Gates of Splendor, she was living in Massachusetts and working as a writer in her 1973 book, A Slow and Certain Light, Some Thoughts on the Guidance of God, was another exposition of her beliefs about the will of God, and this time a direct meditation uh, on what God's guidance really is. And so she speaks about how 
um, the change came about. So the slow and certain light shows Elizabeth Elliot still believed God cares about and is involved in both the big picture and details, and that God does give direction to people that God's will must be obeyed, but her whole emphasis is in seeking God's guidance at change. And the book acknowledges that, like the college-age Elliot, desperate to discern God's will, human beings tend to want to correctly identify the will of God in order to perfectly obey it. Our goal is... Uh, is to know the right way. We don't like to make mistakes, but there is no, uh, but there, but there is no longer a sense that it, uh, that this is the correct goal or that God's goal is in the matter. Rather, it suggests God's guidance is intended first and foremost to help us know God. He is everything we are asking for. It says, echoing Thomas Cranmer's re- translation of Psalm 71:4. Uh, in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, you, thou, O Lord, art the thing that I long for. So it's an uh, interesting uh, transition that takes place that uh, Lucy Austin gives us in this uh, chapter of the book that uh, she wrote on Elizabeth Elliot. So it's a very helpful, instructive um, guide, and maybe we, something that helped each of us reflect on how we see God directing and guiding our, our steps. Isn't that that one statement is great? Like um, the one, well, her theology didn't stay where it was in her twenties. I mean, can we all just be thankful that our theology didn't didn't just? <laughs> well, maybe not everybody has. I'm thankful my theology is not what it was when I was twenty. Yeah. So. Yeah, and given everything you've given your testimony, I'm glad too, Paul. You know, so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So. <laughs> uh, and uh, by the way, it's true for uh, it's true for all of us. So, I mean, that's part of the whole idea of Christian growth. Well, number nine, uh, little voices in the pews. And with little voices, you can guess that uh, it has to do with uh, children being in worship. And this is by Amy uh, Toman. Um, <clears throat> so she's talking about uh, children uh, coming to church with their children and their parents and being able to be discipled, taught, trained to uh, sit still at different age appropriate things. So uh, she says, uh, here, our children have been sitting through church services their whole life. They are, of course, she's a pastor's wife, which doesn't necessarily guarantee anything, but uh, they are still sitting through worship services. Services are often interactive, including singing together, responsive readings, prayer, and a sermon. Whenever we attend another church, we have the same, if not a higher expectation than on our regular Sunday. Uh, that's past Sunday, we asked a lot of our kids, our ages 2, 5, 8, and 11, so they're not uh, just... Uh, older teens here. They have amazed us in the past and their ability to be flexible in various orders of service and to learn from God's word from a multitude of different preachers. Last Sunday was one of these days. We asked them to wake extra early so that we could drive a little over an hour to a friend's church. And then we asked them to sit quietly during the entire service, which was different than what we were used to. A wonderful service, but different. Uh, we have then asked them to eat uh, quietly at the table and play calmly uh, while we had lunch at the church with some friends. Unfortunately, due to the weather, uh, we were unable to play outside and so forth. So thinking back to the worship service, I had special reason to give thanks. Our normal Sunday service runs about an hour and 10 minutes. There are ample times then the children are active, responsive, up and down, uh, participating through singing and reading. We allow them the to bring a notebook and pen or a small toy for the younger ones 
to use during the sermon to help keep their hands uh, their their hands occupied and their ears open. And this week I forgot to grab our church note uh, church notebooks. Uh, a big mistake, or so I thought, until we arrived at church again. Our children surprised me. Uh, they were perfectly uh, fine listening to the sermon without their notes notebooks. Not only did they sit quietly, well, all but the toddler, uh, that they sat through a service that was an hour and a half long, an extra 20 minutes longer than our service used to be. Uh, They were friendly and interactive with those who sat around, and despite not knowing many of the songs, including the service, they began to sing along in the third and second and third stanzas as we sang. So what she's talking about is the lesson she learned. It says how foolish it is that we can insinuate that the word of God is too hard for our children, uh, that, that we simple creatures can take the word of God and minimize it for our children, that we know better than God. It's insulting to God and proves our selfish, sinful, and conceited attitude. So uh, she just exhorts in this article that that uh, children can be taught uh, in church and they don't have to be necessarily in a kid's church uh, for them to uh, speak and so just a uh, it's a testimony but it's also a uh, train opportunity to say how in what way do we train up a child in the way they should go yeah i agree i think it's great to put little ones in the service uh you know somebody's a father of a six-year-old right now you know this it's uh, it's tough sometimes it really is but i actually think it's been good um because sunday uh sunday i'll call them discipline opportunities I believe are more fruitful than uh, disciplining the child for messing up uh, during the week, you know, in the day to day. It just gives an opportunity to really reinforce uh, when they do mess up and when they do, uh, uh, you know, need punishment. Uh, you really are able to reinforce why the Lord's Day is so special and, and why uh, this type of nonsense <laughs> can't be tolerated. So That's right. Yeah. Okay, then number 10, uh, come uh, back of Atheists and Oaths by James Bruce or Jay Bruce, as he's commonly known. And he starts out, should atheists offer testimony before church court? So the issue is court, uh, church court, not uh, going to civil court or a secular court. Given the desirability of truthful testimony, the relevance of the Ninth Commandment to this question is obvious. Can someone be trusted not to bear false witness against his neighbor if he refuses to call upon God as witness and judge? Uh, That's an important question and one that we should consider. Now, backdrop a little bit. Uh, This comes out of uh, one of the major uh, debate points in the last General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, where there was a proposed overture to allow for uh, people who do not are not Trinitarian or maybe not believing in God. Uh, so the word atheist was thrown back quite a bit. Uh, so you could have an agnostic, someone who just doesn't claim that he believes in a trying God necessarily uh, to uh, can. Th- and there's a church court going on a trial. Uh, should that person be allowed to speak? Because right now, the way the book of church order is written with regard to trials in uh, before church courts, uh, it's not allowable. So there was a great deal of debate, went back and forth. In fact, I would say that of all the topics that were discussed at this last General Assembly, uh, it probably took up most of the time and probably was the most animated 
uh, back and forth, and it uh, sort of crossed over to, you know, wasn't something conservative, not conservative, or anything like that. It was just, it's it's a topic that grabbed a lot of attention. So it was out of that that um, Jay wrote this of atheists and oath, and he basically couches it in uh, two arguments. Um, so so he says, so let's be clear, the following arguments do not depend upon a characterization of atheists as uniquely horrible, in other words, they're not going to be bad people, or especially prone to lie. On the contrary, the arguments assume that many atheists will tell the truth. The issue is not the more characteristic character uh, the is not the moral character of the atheist. The issue is the nature of oaths themselves and the third commandment, which is that you shall honor and revere the name of the Lord. So he says, let me make two arguments about this. And he gives a summary first, four um, statements. Oaths uh, just are oath just are statements that call God as witness and judge. That's number one. Number two, atheists cannot make statements that call God as witness and judge. Three, to say atheists can take an oath without calling on God as witness and judge is a contradiction because that's just not uh, what that's just not what an oath is. And number four, to permit an oath without using God's name is a violation of the third commandment because God's name is required for an oath. So he takes those four statements and he draws them down to two as he explains it. One is a godless oath is no oath at all. So he says, first, we ask what an oath is. To address this question, let's think about how we identify anything at all. Usually we appeal to a thing's specific difference. That is, what distinguishes what we're talking about from other things that resemble it? For example, if you ask for a spoon and I give you a knife, you'll say you want something, uh, you want the scooping thing, not cut, not the cutting thing. By contrast, if you ask for a spoon and I bring you a shovel, you will say that you want a utensil, not a digging tool. Okay, so he goes through those uh, distinctions. So what about the oaths? What is the specific difference between a solemn speech and an oath between stating something firmly and swearing to it? And there's one word, God. In an oath, someone calls God as witness and judge. Indeed, an oath just is calling God as witness and judge. Put another way, there is no such thing as an oath without God as witness and judge. There is only one kind of oath, the one that calls upon God as witness and judge. Solomon's solemn speech does not appeal to God, may be called, that does not appeal to God, may be called an oath by others, but calling something an oath does not make it an oath. Calling upon God as witness and judge makes something an oath. So that's the, the first thing, and he goes to good details on this, and it's very involved uh, argumentation and reasoning. So you need to read this uh, helpful, uh, helpfully. It comes down now to conclude this first argument. He says, to speak of an atheist swearing an oath without calling God as witness and judge is to speak incoherently. Consider a, par a parallel. A bachelor just is an unmarried man. That's what the bachelor is. If someone speaks to his uh, married of his married bachelor friend, he shows he does not know what the word bachelor means. So too, an oath calls God as witness and judge. That's just what an oath is. If someone claims to take a godless oath, 
he does uh, he shows he does not know what an oath is. If a man is married, he's not a bachelor. If a solemn promise does not include God as witness and judge, it is not an oath. Okay, then number two, he talks about uh, don't be ashamed of God's name. So he says the first argument uh, considers what an oath is. Atheists cannot take oath because we cannot pretend that an oath is something other than someone calling upon God's uh, witness and as witness and judge. The second argument to which we now turn focuses on the honor due God's name. Uh, put simply, we must use God's name in an oath. Uh, we cannot circumvent uh, this responsibility. And he gives his arguments on that. So uh, it's very engaged uh, an intricate uh, detail, detailing of why atheists can't give oaths and why the General Assembly honored the fact or acted correctly, as he would say, that we did not uh, propose accept the proposed amendment uh, with regard to oaths and uh, witnesses uh, taking oaths before church courts and when we have trials. So, um, it's, I think, it's something that's very helpful, instructive. What it does, I think, uh, Paul, it really raises the understanding that our words really are important. That's the reason, you know, sometimes when we look at the third commandment, we're just saying it's uh, calling, uh, reminding us not to curse, which, of course, it, that's what it means. If we invoke God's name in something uh, that is not correct and if intended to wound or to hurt, uh, we are invoking the wrath of the divine on somebody uh, to um, make that point. Uh, and we have to be careful because the, misusing God's name just by itself, we don't really have that sense of the holiness of it as much as the Hebrews did. And they were fearful of even saying God's name at times because they feared it may have been said in such a way that it was depreciating him. So uh, we have lost that sense of the holy. And Jay's article here uh, really helps us to come to appreciate how important that is that we speak uh, God correctly. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right there about about losing the, the holiness of, of God, his name. Uh, I liked this article because I, I had no idea, never even crossed my mind that when an atheist uh, has to take an oath, he's being a hypocrite. <laughs> you know, I, I it just never, never crossed my mind. Um, but I tweeted this out the other day. It was an old Francis Schaeffer quote uh, that uh, came to my attention. I think it's kind of apropos here. Uh, no truly authoritarian government can tolerate those who have a real absolute by which to judge its arbitrary absolutes and who speak out and act upon that absolute. Um, I, I feel like that kind of goes uh, hand in hand here. I mean, it's it's a, maybe a little tangent, but um, it is interesting that, uh, you know, God is something, the God of the Bible undergird, uh, undergirds Western civilization, and, it, and it's everywhere, even though, and there's still remnants of it, even though we've tried to evict him from public life. Uh, we still have oaths, and uh, as far as I know, the Ten Commandments are still uh, up at the U.S. Supreme Court on the building there. So, anyway. Exactly, right. Well, this is the quarter Report and Weekly Review. The top ten articles have gone through with Paul Harrell, myself, and we just uh, enjoyed the fact that you were here, that we could present this to you, anticipating you're getting the newsletter tomorrow on Tuesday, the July 18th so that you can then 
click through them and read them, share them, uh, study them, discuss them. Uh, hopefully it's helpful uh, to all of us as we are challenged by these uh, concepts and ideas and notions that are taking place. Things in the church, things in the culture, things that are personal. Uh, all these things are encouraging because we hope that the Deep Cooler Report does present a wide swath of uh, opportunities to be challenged in uh, every aspect of our walk in Christ and our growth in Him. And so until the next time, we desire and pray that God will work His will, His work, 